1: Good morning, and welcome to the second quarter 2020 AGF Management Limited Earnings Conference. My name is Brandon and I'll be your operator for today. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question-and-answer session, during which you can dial star one if you have a question. Please note this conference is being recorded, and I will now turn it over to Adrian Basaraba. You may begin, sir.
2: Thank you, operator, and good morning, everyone. I'm Adrian Basaraba, Senior Vice President and Chief Financial Officer of AGF Management Limited. Today, we will be discussing the financial results for the second quarter of fiscal 2020. Slides supporting today's call and webcast can be found in the Investor Relations section of AGF.com. Also speaking today will be Kevin McCready, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer. For the live question and answer period with investment analysts following the presentation, Judy Goldring, President and Head of Global Distribution, will also be available to address questions. Turning to slide four, I'll provide the agenda for today's call. We will provide an update on the Smith & Williams transaction, discuss the highlights of Q2 2020, provide an update on the key segments of our business, review our financial results, discuss our capital and liquidity position, and finally close by outlining our focus for the remainder of 2020. After the prepared remarks, we will be happy to take questions. And with that, I'll turn the call over to Kevin.
3: Thank you, Adrian, and thank you, everyone, for joining us today. As was announced earlier this month, significant progress was made on the proposed merger between Smith and & Williamson and Tilney. Two firms have agreed to a revised transaction structure that includes a material new equity investment from funds advised by Warburg Pincus LLC and a lower level of leverage for the combined entity. Under the revised terms, AGF expects to receive total cash proceeds of approximately $300 million, including dividends and distributions of $47 million. and This is approximately two times the current book value. The return on our investment gives us the flexibility to redeploy capital in a number of ways, including servicing debt repayment, funding future share buybacks, and continuing to invest in new areas of growth. The revised transaction structure will require approval by the relevant regulators, antitrust authorities, and Smith and & Williamson shareholders. Allowing for the process of receiving these approvals in the current environment, the transaction is anticipated to close in the second half of the year. Moving on to slide five, we will discuss highlights of Q2 2020. During the second quarter of 2020, we continued to execute against our strategy and stated goals. I'll begin with some highlights. Given the COVID-19 situation, nearly all of our global staff work from home this quarter. We experienced no interruptions to our business operations, and in some cases, we are performing at a higher efficiency level than pre-COVID. We have also increased our lines of communications with our strategic partners, clients, and prospects globally, delivering timely market updates, and information about our products through a variety of digital channels, including AGF.com, weekly conference calls, webcasts, and direct-to-client emails. Our private alternatives business reached another milestone with the final closing of the InStar AGF Essential Infrastructure Fund II, which raised approximately U.S. $1.2 in aggregate equity commitments. AGF is a finalist at the Wealth Professional Awards in four categories this year, Fund Provider of the Year, Employer of Choice, CEO of the Year, and ETF Champion of the Year. Winners will be announced in September. We remain on track to meet our SG&A guidance of $180 million with the potential for further savings due to the impact of COVID-19. The Board unanimously confirmed a quarterly dividend of $0.8 per share for the second quarter. Starting on slide six, we'll provide updates on our business performance. On this slide, we break down our total AUM the categories disclosed in our MD&A and show comparisons to the prior year. AUM ended the quarter at $36.3 billion. Usual fund AUM decreased by 2%. I will provide more color on our fund business in a moment. Institutional subadvisory and ETF AUM decreased compared to prior year, mainly due to the redemptions we addressed in previous quarters. While COVID-19 has caused a modest slowdown in RFP activity, we continue to see strong interest in our global sustainable growth equity and emerging markets equity strategies. Performance for our global sustainable growth equity strategy has been stellar, exceeding the benchmark by well over 200 basis points on a one-, three-, and five-year basis. Under Regina Chee's leadership, performance of our emerging market equity strategy has also improved and will approach the three-year mark this fall, which is key for the institutional channel. For our ETF business, our suite of liquid alternatives continues to attract interest. During the recent market downturn, investors saw firsthand the benefit of diversifying their portfolios with our liquid alternative products. At the peak of the downturn, while the S&P was down roughly 30%, our market-neutral anti-beta strategy performed as expected and produced positive returns in the mid-teens. Our global infrastructure ETF, which is available in both Canada and the U.S., has also attracted positive press coverage. We anticipate strong demand for these products over the long run. We view alternatives as a spectrum, ranging from liquid alternatives at one end to private alternatives at the other. Our alternatives business, including liquid solutions, totals over $3.3 billion in AUM to date. Our private alternatives AUM reached $2.9 billion this quarter due to our latest fund, which raised considerable capital from institutional investors in Canada, the United States, Europe, and the Middle East and Asia. Fund 2 achieved an 80% participation rate from existing investors, reflecting the team's focus on building long-term relationships with its limited partners, and has already deployed approximately 35% of its capital to high-quality investments in the United States and Canada. Turning to slide 7, I'll provide some detail on the mutual fund business. As indicated on our previous earnings call, COVID-19 has introduced unprecedented uncertainty and volatility to global markets. Unsurprisingly, the Canadian fund industry reported net redemptions of $15 billion in our latest fiscal quarter, compared to net sales of a half a billion positive for the same period last year. In this challenging environment, our retail fund business reported net redemptions of $93 million, compared to net redemptions of $169 million in Q2 of last year. As we disclosed on our previous earnings call, we had net redemptions of $65 million up to March 24th. For the remainder of the quarter, we had net redemptions of $28 million. We are also seeing days of positive net sales in June. Despite working from home for most of the quarter, our retail team remained very active, conducting over 80 client events and reaching out to thousands of advisors. In May, we held a virtual event to help advisors navigate the rapidly evolving world of digital client engagement. This event was attended by close to 1,400 advisors. Overall, our level of client interactions is up 15% versus normal run rate. Our investment management team has also been heavily involved in supporting our clients by providing expert insights and thought leadership. Our weekly market update calls, which started the week of March 15th, consistently attract over 750 attendees across retail and institutional channels with participants from Canada, the U.S., Europe, and Australia. Before I return the call back to Adrian, I want to give a quick update on performance. AGF measures mutual fund performance by comparing gross returns before fees relative to peers within the same category, with the first percentile being the best possible performance. This is a slight modification from last quarter, where a hundred percentile was used for the best possible performance. We target an average percentile ranking versus peers of 50% over one year and 40% over three years. As of May 31, 2020, our average percentile ranking over the past one year was 49%, and our average percentile ranking over the past three years was 56%. With respect to our ETFs, 80% of our Canadian-listed ETFs have outperformed their peers year-to-date, and 67% of our U.S.-listed ETFs have outperformed their peers year-to-date. With that, I will turn the call back to Adrian.
2: Thank you, Kevin. Slide 8 reflects a summary of our financial results for the second quarter, with sequential quarter, and year-over-year comparisons. For ease of comparison, we have included adjusted numbers and restated prior period results for IFRS 16 throughout the remainder of the presentation. We have also included a section of the table showing results excluding Smith & Williamson. As Kevin discussed earlier, Smith & Williamson and Tilney have agreed to a revised transaction structure. Please recall, for accounting purposes, Smith & Williamson is now classified as held for sale, and equity accounting ceased mid-September last year. This means only dividends received will be recognized as income. As a result, we recorded no income from Smith & Williamson in the current quarter. This compares to 6.5 million of equity income in Q2 2019 and 4.5 million of dividend income in Q1 2020. Excluding Smith & Williamson from prior period results, diluted EPS was flat to Q2 2019 and down one penny compared to Q1 2020. Looking ahead, we anticipate receiving a dividend of 9 million in June and a special distribution of $33.7 million immediately before closing. Both items will be recorded in dividend income, and a special distribution of $33.7 million will be treated as a one-time item. Excluding Smith & Williamson from prior period results, EBITDA for the current quarter is $4.5 million lower than Q1 2020, and $2.7 million lower than Q2 2019. When you consider management fees, trailers, and SG&A, even for our wealth management business, held up relatively well. Lower EBIT in the quarter is partly attributable to income from our investments in private alternative funds, which I will address in a moment. At the beginning of the year, we issued SG&A guidance of $180 million for 2020. This represents a reduction of approximately $15 million over the last three years. Our achievement in efficiency has come at a time when we were also investing a significant amount of resources to new and emerging growth areas including private alternatives, global and quantitative investing, and ETFs, all of which are being funded from our existing operating capital. With COVID-19 impacting many aspects of our daily routines, we anticipate we will have a further savings of up to $5 million due to the reduction of activities, including travel and meals and entertainment. Turning to slide nine, I'll walk you through the yield on our business in terms of basis points. This slide shows our revenue, operating expenses, and EBITDA, before commissions as a percentage of average AUM on the current quarter as well as a trailing 12 month view. Note that AUM and related results from Smith & Williamson, the private alternatives business, one-time items and other income are excluded. The Q2 revenue yield is 108 basis points, which is one basis point lower than the trailing 12 months. The decline is mainly due to a shift to lower fee products. Q2 SG&A as a percentage of AUM was 49 basis points which is two basis points favorable compared to the trailing 12 months. This resulted in an EV yield of 25 basis points, which is flat to the trailing 12 months. Turning to slide 10, I will discuss free cash flow and capital uses. This slide represents the last five quarters of the consolidated free cash flow on a trailing 12-month basis, as shown by the orange bars on the chart. The black line represents a percentage of free cash flow that is paid out as a dividend. Our trailing 12-month free cash flow was $49 million, and our dividend payout ratio was 51%. We have committed both operating and balance sheet capital to alternatives. As Kevin mentioned, we view alternatives as a spectrum. Our liquid alternative AUM is now almost $5.5 uh, $5 billion, and our private alternatives AUM is close to $3 billion. Our total remaining capital commitment to the private alternatives business is $61 million. The original objective of our private alternatives business, which started back in 2014, was to generate recurring income. Most importantly, management fee profits through a variety of funds and managers. At the same time, we are positioning the business for future growth. We've succeeded in growing AUM and earning LP income. We have recorded LP income of $49 million since inception. Also since inception, we've earned GP income of $3.3 million and received dividends of $2.6 million. GP earnings have been muted by the fact that potential profit has been reinvested to accommodate future growth. In addition, accounting has limited our ability to record GP income. IFRS requires we accrue carry expenses in each GP even though they are non-cash and we don't record the corresponding revenue until carry is actually realized. If you look at it on a cash basis, total operating cash flow at the GP level is targeted at approximately $3 million per year. And this amount should grow as the various GPs scale. GP dividend payouts will be in a similar quantum, but maybe more lumpy. Income from our investments in private LP funds was slightly lower this quarter. The current quarter was impacted by COVID-19 pandemic and the corresponding market uncertainty and volatility. Since inception, our private alternative funds have produced gross IRRs above our target of 12%. We've also had successful monetizations. For example, When Stream Asset Financial LP monetized its seed asset, it resulted in a 65% IRR on this investment. We are committed to growing within the alternative space. We believe market dynamics will continue to drive assets into differentiated products that provide negative correlation, enhance returns, and increase income levels. The recent market downturn, if anything, may accelerate this trend. Alternative assets have delivered good relative returns through previous market downturns, and we believe it will do so again. Smith & Williamson transaction will provide resources to help accelerate this growth. We expect to receive net cash proceeds of approximately $275 million in the short term. So, when we don't have immediate use, we intend to repay debt, which currently stands at $201 million, leaving the remaining cash on our balance sheet. We would also relever if we uncover compelling opportunities to grow. We think one-times to EBITDA is a good target, and we're comfortable increasing our net debt to EBITDA up to two times temporarily. In addition to managing our debt and growth, we would also consider return of capital to shareholders and expect to be active on our share buyback program. To determine the amount of share buybacks, we will consider a number of items, including timing of cash receipts from Smith & Williamson, our share price, and free cash flowables. Turning to slide 11, I will turn it to Kevin to wrap up today's call.
3: Thanks, Adrian. 2-2 is a solid quarter. Despite the challenges posed by COVID-19, we continue to make progress against our stated objectives. Our retail and institutional distribution teams remain highly engaged and focused on driving the organization to sustainable net inflows despite difficult market conditions. We expect to receive total cash proceeds of approximately $300 million from the merger of Smith and & Williamson and Tilney later this year. Our latest infrastructure fund achieved final close with approximately US$1.2 billion in aggregate equity commitments and we remain on track to meet our 2020 SG&A guidance with the potential for further savings due to the impact of COVID-19. The pandemic has introduced uncertainty and volatility to global markets and economies and has resulted in material disruptions to businesses globally. While many governments have applied monetary and fiscal interventions to stabilize the economy, the impact of these measures, as well as the length and severity of the pandemic, remains unknown. In this environment, we would like to reiterate that it's not if, but when we recover from the economic fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic, and we believe the best course of action for investors remains a broadly diversified portfolio that includes stocks, bonds, and alternative asset classes and strategies. At AGF, we remain focused on our strategic priorities, which are to deliver consistent and repeatable investment performance and drive the organization to sustainable net inflows. Position the firm to receive $5 billion in alternative assets by 2020 and meet our expense guidance while continuing to invest in key growth areas. I want to thank everyone on the AGF team for all of their hard work in these challenging times. We will now take your questions.
1: Thank you. We'll now begin the question and answer session. If you have a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad. If you'd like to be removed from the queue, please press the pound sign or the hash key. If you're on a speakerphone, please pick up your handset first before dialing. Once again, if you have a question, please press star one on your telephone keypad. And from Jardin Capital, we have Gary Ho. Please go ahead.
4: Thanks, and uh, good morning. Just first question, um, just on the SNW transaction, can you provide any further updates on the approval um, since your early June announcement? And uh, you know, how are how are those progressing?
3: And any comments on uh, when the
4: deal could could close?
3: Yeah. Thanks, Gary. It's Kevin, let me take that one. Um, yeah, so let's just re- remind everybody where we are. So um, we announced the transaction, uh, revised transaction structure uh, at the end of May, uh, which is essentially uh, to give us an all-cash uh, transaction of roughly, at the time, $300 million um, when, uh, when you consider various cash flows, special dividend, and then, and then uh, what would be the final proceeds. Uh, timeline is as follows. Um, as you recall, the first transaction was held back by the FCA uh, with some concern around the the capital structure that was going to be used in the merger. Um, that has been alleviated, we think, uh, given the fact that a large equity infusion with a new partner, Warburg Pincus, um, who will come alongside Primera, uh to help take us out of our stake. Um, so the FCA, we understand, has that new application, uh, and we'll be reviewing it sometime in the coming months. Um, as soon as that is approved, we'll take that to shareholders, um, where we expect to, uh, again, very similar transaction for them, so we don't expect any issue there. And then finally, it'll be have to run through the uh, EU and a few other jurisdictions' antitrust approvals. Uh, but given that the combined entity doesn't do any real business outside the EU, we don't expect there to be a hurdle there as well. Uh, which puts the timeline still back into the early fall, uh, early mid fall.
4: Okay, that's uh, that's helpful. Thanks. And, and then maybe just further, um, assuming the deal closes and you guys sound pretty confident, you you've said before the balance approach and you guys just outlined that buybacks, debt repayment, investment for growth. And then just on the buyback piece, Kevin, you know, stock had had a bounce since the news. You know, how do you think about you know the share price today and how aggressive might you be
3: with the buyback? Yeah, we um we've had you know, we've been in a blackout because of the transaction for quite some time. We had a narrow window that opened in the spring uh, where we were uh, active when one of our employee benefit trusts where we bought uh, 750,000 shares. I think the average price was somewhere below three and a half. We still think the stock looks attractive here. You can also note that while that window opened, um, a large number of senior management uh, purchased shares in the open market Uh, at that time, which should tell you something, what we think about the valuation as well. So as we go forward, obviously, we um, will be um, looking to uh, you know, add more uh, or take down more purchases of that, um, but we're also cognizant of market volatility and cash flows right now until we get through the S&W transaction. Uh, so again, uh, nothing has changed there, but uh, given, obviously, price sensitivity, um, we would agree it's an attractive level. Uh, obviously, initial proceeds will be used to pay down debt immediately. Uh, so think of us being net cash after the transaction. And then, some again, some balanced approach toward the buyback over the longer term, as well as how do we invest for future growth um, around us, uh, around some of our initiatives. So uh, that's sort of the balance that we look at and, and kind of the sequence. And are you guys uh, in
4: the blackout until the deal closes? Is that how we should think about it? No, we'll be out of the blackout uh, come tomorrow. Got it. Okay. And then just last question, um, I think, Kevin, you provided some color and performance. uh, Wondering if you can give us some details on the net flows outlook um, kind of for the back half of this year, kind of both on the retail and institutional side.
3: Yeah, maybe I'll take the front half of that and maybe give it to Judy on some of the other issues. Um, But, yeah, market volatility has, um, if you think about it, uh, what we saw in March was unprecedented. I hate using that word right now, but um, in terms of the size and speed of that decline. Uh, and then what we saw in terms of uh, advisor activity, we know advisors are still sitting on a, a fair amount of cash when you look at that sizable redemption we saw in Canada in March, which is about $15 billion. And we looked at what went into money market funds and not just in Canada and around the world. And a lot of it's sitting on bank balance sheets, and it's hard to see that a lot of it's gone back. So advised retail, and I'm going to use that word advised retail, has been fairly, I think, conservative here. Uh, as this market has really screamed back to a new high in the midst of probably one of the greatest uh, depression quarters we're about to see come Q2. So a pretty big disconnect between what markets are anticipating for recovery uh, and then vis-a-vis what the economies will do. And so I think that there is a lot of uh, cash still on the side. Um, you've seen some headlines and press in the U.S. about what I would call uh, do-it-yourself investors in retail, so not with advisors who have been uh, using some of these free trading platforms like Robinhood, Schwab, Ameritrade, et cetera, uh, in that activity. So I would differentiate maybe that investor is um, frothy, but our advised retail investors uh, seem to be more conservative. And I think we'll look to put cash back once you see that the economy starts to probably uh, get to some firmer footing. But I don't know, Judy, if you've got any other color or comments on the, what we saw in the last couple of months.
0: Uh, just in, in terms of flows, when we had talked about. Um We first met, I guess, last met, it was the bottom of the market, and we had reported at the end of, uh, by the end of March, it was about minus 75 out. What we were pleased to see is in April and May, it was effectively flat. Um, So, you know, ended the quarter at 93 million out, uh, as against a 169 uh, in the prior year. So um, we were pleased with the performance, I think, through to the end of Q2. As we look forward into June, we're sort of sitting currently at modest net redemptions, better than last year. Uh, at the same time period, and as we look forward, with the continued high volatility, uh, you know, summer months coming, and with so much money on the sidelines, we are starting to see some cash come back in the marketplace, and we're very confident about our product lineup, which has seen some products that have stellar performance. Uh, We expect to be on the receiving end of uh, when that money comes back into motion. Uh, In terms of institutional, uh, we're seeing, again, more uptick in terms of RFP and RFI activity going into uh, the, the next quarter. And, again, we have products that we believe will be uh, well-situated to be on the receiving end of that money emotion. motion.
3: And, Garrett, you also uh, talked about performance. I mean, let me just throw that in while we're at it. I mean, performance held in really well, as you know, in that downturn, um, re- very, very well. And we've been very conservatively positioned going into that. And we've also held up pretty well coming out of it. Um, so I think we're, we're, we uh, navigated both sides of that, the, both the slide and the, and the rally uh, pretty well, which I think sets us up okay on the retail side uh, as we move forward.
4: Okay, great. Thanks for the color. That's it
1: for me. From RBC Capital Markets, we have Jeff Kwan. Please go ahead.
5: Hi, good morning. I um, just wanted to go back to on the Smith & Williamson uh, deal, Kevin. is How would you describe your level of confidence that the deal you know, will close in its current form, and, and how would that level of confidence in terms of getting the required approvals differed, if at all, versus how you would have felt when the original deal was announced?
3: Yeah, Jeff, good question. I mean, I think in the beginning, on the original deal, um, there was always a concern about the amount of leverage um, uh, from our part. Uh, that's why if you look at the structuring originally, we had opted to take most of the cash uh, in that transaction. Um, we also know that given the, that the FCA has been on side most of the way as we brought along a new equity partner, um, that that hurdle, I think that was really the issue there, the central issue, has been, has been mitigated. Uh, so i'd say that's part one of that uh, part two of that is that the the terms to the employee shareholders remember this we own about a third employees own about a third and retirees roughly a third uh, you know just to make my math easy um the terms of the transaction and the revised transaction really did not change much in terms of overall value to the employees so i don't anticipate an issue with the employee or the shareholder vote um, as we go forward so i think two of the three and, I, and as i said. We've already had antitrust approval from the EU in the prior transaction that was granted in the fall. This doesn't materially change anything there, so it doesn't really, i say, present any further hurdles there. So I'd say higher level of confidence this time around. Um, I thought it was low that it wasn't going to pass the last time, so I think it's, you know, you you never say never, but it's pretty high.
5: Got it. And then just expanding on um, the question. question Gary had around uh, redeployment of capital. So you talked about, okay, pay down the leverage, um, but I think you've also talked about it before, is just eventually getting back to what's called a normal or reasonable level of leverage would, would imply you know, quite a bit of money that you'd have to redeploy. And, and in terms of where you do that, like for example, in your alternative strategy, can you talk about um, you know, are there provisions where you can increase your cone investment and how much could you add there um, thinking about acquisition opportunities, you know, what might be of interest? Is it more bolt-ons or something maybe a little bit bigger? And then, and then finally, um, is it unreasonable to think that there could be some sort of substantial capital return uh, over the near term, um, say over the next year in the form of a special dividend and or substantial issuer
3: bid? Yeah, so let's take them all in a couple of pieces there, uh, Jeff. On, on the first one, um, which is, you know, the proceeds. So think about it this way. We'll, we'll net out around $275 million of this. Uh, debt is down to 200 today. So we have some working capital cash on our balance sheet already. So think you start out life with 75 to 100000000 million. Um, we've got commitments already to probably another $60 million or so to our existing uh, alternative funds that we have out there. Um, but think about replacing the S&W earning stream, right? If you can find assets over time that, you know, have a 12% kind of return profile, um, you can re up our current EBITDA one, one and a half times and replace that earning stream. And so then the question, um, second question which you've asked, which is where, um, it's not transformational, nothing big. Uh, I think we've done a lot of heavy lifting internally uh, to reposition the firm for growth, whether it be build out of our quant platform, our ETF strategies. Um, And we start to think about alternatives now as a spectrum, right, which is private alternatives. Think of infrastructure, credit, et cetera. On one end, which are longer-term funds, at the other end are liquid alternatives, which have really done pretty well in a short period of time. Um, Between our U.S. liquid and Canadian liquid ETFs, liquid alternative ETFs, we're already approaching a half a billion in a short period of time. So at the other end of the spectrum, that's attractive. And so we think of that whole spectrum, whether it's daily liquid, or longer-term private, or some hybrid in the middle as really a place where we can grow. And, and think about feeding other partnerships, other joint ventures, other things over time to help us get there. So don't think of something large and transformational. Think about something that is really centered around that spectrum of alternatives in different ways to help us, what we, th- what we see as a, a pretty good growth part of the investment uh, business. And then lastly, yeah, there might be some tuck-ins. As you know, we did FFCM to get the capabilities that we have today to be able to do some of the market-neutral strategies within those F- uh, in those ETFs. So I'd say those would be more bolt-on things that we'd see us do, but nothing large-scale.
4: Okay, and then just
5: on, on some sort of special dividend substantial issuer bid potential.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, as I said, it will be a balanced approach. Um, I think the board obviously looks at all alternatives to this. Um, it's hard to see a special dividend. Uh, I wouldn't rule anything out, but that's not something we're talking about. We'd rather take that money and use it to grow the company organically uh, in the future. Everything else, obviously, okay. would be stock price dependent.
5: Got it. And, and just my final, final question was for Adrian. You, you know, with respect to the $180 million in SG&A uh, and flagging that both in the quarter and, and maybe perhaps going forward, to given COVID-19, some reduced expenses, can you like, do you have a ballpark of, you know, what that might look like through the second half of 2020? And then on an annualized basis, um, would any of that be kind of thought as being permanent or is it really more of a temporary, you know, reduction of expenses?
2: Yeah, thanks for the question, Jeff. Um, Yeah, as I said in my remarks, we've worked our expense base down to uh, $180 million, and that's our guidance for the year. Um, that's a $15 million reduction over the course of the last couple of years and if you look at the expenses in the quarter uh, around $40 million that's five million dollars favorable to the guidance but what I will say about that is some of that's timing some of it is uh, related to stock based compensation which will reverse and so and we've always said that SG&A can vary quarter to quarter so we try to uh, point people to the annual numbers and uh, so we're reiterating our, our $180 million expense guidance for 2020. We don't change it kind of mid-year, or we tend not to. Uh, but we think that expenses will likely come in a little bit lower. We think it's uh, trending towards $175 for 2020. So um, I, w- I would look at that $175 um, for 2020, and you can impute what the remaining quarters are. But again, quarter to quarter, um, they, don't, they don't always come in uh, you know, perfectly divisible. Um, and if you look at the reason for the savings that I just mentioned, there's just a natural reduction from COVID-19, things like meals and entertainment, uh, hiring is a little bit harder to do in this environment. And then we're just being very prudent with expenses because we're in an uncertain time.
5: Okay. So essentially, it sounds like the reduction of expenses in a normal period, if, if that's what 2021 looks like, uh, these reductions are more temporary than anything to be permanent.
2: Well, I would say that five million of them are kind of uh, are, are permanent in so insofar as uh, they get us to the 175, but mm-hmm. the timing is more for, more so like you know Q2 versus Q3 or four. Got it. And okay. then as far as 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 far as next year, we'll you know we'll deal with that um, at the end of the year. We don't we don't uh, start giving guidance for for next year until uh, Q4. Okay. Hey uh,
3: hey Jeff, it's Kevin. The other thing I'd add is you know. Um, even if we found a vaccine tomorrow and everything came back to, to normal, I still think there's, there's, there's some secular change to every industry, including ours, um, about what we've learned through this that will have a natural reduction to that SGNA line that we all don't have a handle on yet. So I, I wouldn't classify it all as temporary. Some of it may be structural in nature and, and go forward. But it certainly has helped us take the 15 out the last couple of years when we got into this that we didn't have to do anything drastic. And, and in fact, we can actually start to think about the future. In a more disruptive positive fashion for our expense base got it great thank you
1: from bmo capital we have tom mckinnon please go ahead
6: yeah thanks uh, good morning everyone uh a couple questions of one on flows and one on tax rate um, page 13 of the mdna mentions mutual fund net outflows of 498 million uh, but you mentioned there are $93 million if you exclude some non-recurring institutional flows. Uh, the gross sales that's comparable to the uh, 498 net outflows is $560 million. How should we adjust the uh, gross sales for mutual funds to reflect the non-recurring uh, institutional flows?
0: Uh, thanks. thanks, Tom. So I think the 498 you're looking at is last year's.
6: Um, Yeah, what's the the 93 was adjusted to something? Was adjusted from something, wasn't it?
0: Uh, No, I don't think so. Um, We, you know, where we do have uh, institutional or sub advisory uh, retail, yeah, 93 is unadjusted. But where we do, oh, oh,
6: oh, pardon me. Okay, maybe, yeah, sorry. I'm I'm sorry about that question. So the uh, yeah, I was just looking at the wrong one. Uh, Okay, I'm fine with that. Uh, And the. So the The growth sales then they 're all clean then right the five hundred nine then that was all clean there's no we't yep. no adjustments made to that growth sales uh, maybe uh, uh, sorry and then the question would be then um, in, is there any track where do you see the traction that you're getting on those gross sales
0: uh, in um, the quarter yeah I mean uh, you know really uh, well first of all we've commented that a lot of uh, investors are sitting on the sidelines, but to the extent that we are looking to people coming into it. It's interesting, they've been really focused on global mandates. Uh, we have a fund grade A award winner, uh, AGF Global Select, which has stellar performance. It's been attracting a lot of uh, flows. Um, we're seeing a lot going into our fixed income. Uh, again, I think driven a lot by its good performance in the AGF uh, total return bond fund and class. Our liquid alts have been doing very well. We do, from a retail perspective, look at just not just the mutual fund side, but also the uh, ETF flows, and we're seeing positive flows into particularly a um, couple of the product anti-beta uh, strategies that uh, we started last year, and we've seen assets flow in there in quite, you know, in short order. I mean, it's been quite impressive on our side. And then finally, the GSG space. We've been really, uh, again, very good numbers on that mandate, and uh, it's an area that's of great appeal to investors right now, and so we're seeing some flows into that. All right,
6: um, and if we were to adjust the gross sales from last year for any of those non-recurring items, how should we look at that?
0: Uh, I might have to get back to you on that off the top, I'm not sure. Yeah, we're sure just looking
6: if- for the trend in gross sales here, so yeah. uh, I think there was some adjustments made to the second quarter of 2019, so uh, um, yeah, just trying to, uh, yeah, it, 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 looks- down, down 9% year over year, just as printed in the, on the MD&A, is that, should we be looking at something like that or was the change in the gross sales more?
0: Uh, I'm not sure I'm understanding the question. I, I mean, I don't think, what I can do is get back to you on the um, the gross sales numbers, as I said, if there were any adjustments, I'm not aware of it off the top, um, but if you can uh, just bear with us, we'll, we'll get back think, to you. I think, yeah,
6: that. yeah, I think what you said in the second quarter of 19, uh, the net outflows were 498, but excluding some non-recurring items, the net outflows were uh, 169. So I'm just wondering, how should we adjust the second quarter of last year's gross sales, just so we get a handle as to how gross sales are trending?
0: Yeah, so our gross sales are clean. I mean, gross is gross. We don't do anything. What we will sometimes do on redemptions, if we're looking at pure mutual funds, we may take out sort of an institutional large uh, institutional price series O large uh, redemption, and sometimes that occurs on the redemption side. Um, but if you have a particular quarter you want us to compare, or if it's, a, if it's an annualized number, I would have to get back to you on that. But gross is clean. Okay. You're,
6: you're the gross prepared. seems to be clean. Okay, that's good.
0: Uh, the second is with respect to the tax
6: rate. Uh, uh, maybe, Adrian, what should we be thinking about in terms of the tax rate? Uh, uh, I think it was in the area of you know mid-20s in the quarter, but it was Nineteen percent last year in this quarter how should we be thinking about the tax rate uh, yeah
2: I think going forward twenty two percent is a, a good number to use and then um, you know part of the reason that our tax rate is lower than our statutory rate is because of the Smith & blaton earnings which we get in a tax prefer- uh, preferential manner and of course the twenty two is excluding the effect of the special dividend but then after we um, you know no longer receive those so that income from Smith and Williamson you'll see our tax rate you know next year go closer to uh, our statutory rate okay and then
6: finally is there what's the feedback really just from advisors in this environment are you finding that uh, the uh, um, are actually more or less productive like uh, um, maybe uh, any sort of commentary with respect to that
0: yeah if, if you don't mind I'll, I can start on that it's been interesting um, we found an amazing uh, high level of activity, our ac- retail activity in terms of uh, you know, webinars, phone calls, uh, interactions has gone up by 15% um, just in the short time period of the last couple of months. Uh, in the initial phases, I think uh, advisors were um, looking to have engagement and looking for information. We do obviously lead with a lot of thought leadership pieces and that has been really well taken up. Uh, we have weekly calls, et cetera. And so the interactions were quite high um, there may be now, as we're getting closer towards summertime, a bit more fatigue settling in. Um, I think people get a bit zoomed out, if you will, on these WebExes, et cetera, but at the same time, um, the opportunity set really is providing solutions to advisors, giving them um, thought leadership and uh, giving them indications of where the market's going, and then, you know, continuing those interactions. And so we're still seeing a high level of activity and engagement and um, much shorter, but punch your kind of interactions, which are really uh, effective, I think. So, I don't know, Kevin, do you have any other
3: comments? Yeah, no, I think, you know, listen, we're all adapting, right? Um, you know, we're sitting here almost, uh, I guess we're heading for our from almost four months in, right, to, to being work from home, and so we're all making tweaks and adjustments to it. You know, the retail world won't be any different, Tom, right? There are going to be some advisors who will obviously pursue a flex world on the way back in, right? Um, again, unless we actually get to a, a true therapy and a vaccine, it's hard to see anything more than 20% of the downtown core of any major city coming back into a building. And so so I, I think a lot of the behavioral change we're going to see is going um, to be here for a bit. I think the, the ability to have the use of digital tools and digital marketing, which a lot of spend that we did the last couple of years has been a big advantage in this. Uh, and so I think, you know, uh, to Judy's point, I, I think everyone's behavior has changed a bit, but our activity level has stayed uh, not only picked, it not only stayed the same; it's picked up. And I think you know, advisors are going to want to have to engage, and they may be exhausted from Zoom, but they're, they're going to resume a normalized level of activity, it just may be different.
6: Okay, thanks for your time.
1: Thanks. Once again, if you do have a question, please dial star one on your phone keypad. And from TD Securities, we have Graham writing. Please go ahead.
2: Hi, uh, good morning. Um, good morning, Graham. My first question is just on the private alt side. Um, it's, I think you said 35% of the e, e, uh, EIF2 fund has been uh, deployed. So how should we just think about what's coming next for that platform? Do you uh, Is there a period of time here where you deploy the rest of those funds before you start launching a third fund, or are you already looking at launching a third fund?
1: Um, yeah, you know, obviously we have to get that deployed. This is actually a good opportunity to get
3: that deployed, though. Think about assets being where they are around the world today. Uh, infrastructure assets, are, you know, especially the ones that we tend to invest in, uh, tend to have uh, differentiating capabilities, differentiated business models. Um, they tend to withstand these type of events uh, better than certain other asset classes. So, yeah, yeah the opportunity says probably um, to be able to invest in an environment. this is pretty good. But obviously um
2: that's gonna take a period of time. Okay. Understood. And the the capital that you've committed or invested, I think, is two hundred and seven billion um uh, behind that platform. How should we think about as you move towards that five billion dollar target? What what's the you know total amount of capital that you would be that you think you would need to sort of co invest or commit behind that?
3: Yeah, so maybe I'll, uh, I'll take a quick um, shot at that. And, and so, you know, the way I think about that is if you, um, you're always getting some assets recycled back as funds mature. And so, uh, like, look at today, we have probably $60 million. As I, rem- uh, I think that's probably right about what we have left on the current funds that we are in committed. And so as you commit to a new fund, other funds are starting to mature. My guess is, and Adrian and I have done some modeling on this, at any given time, that number could be upwards of, I don't know, two, north of 200, but it's not significantly north of that, because again, you're always getting some flow of funds back through it. Maybe, Adrian, do you have a different view on that?
2: No, not at all. I mean, precisely to your point, Kevin, um, you know, we get, we've already had a couple significant monetizations Plus, you have to also account for the fact that when you make the investments in these private alt LPs, there's a lot of cash flow coming back to you just in the in the form of uh, you know recurring distributions from the LP. So, um, if you look at the total amount that we commit, we'll never get to that number invested. And uh, maybe just add, you know, the point that the you know, the earnings from the uh, LP investments are are great, uh, and we also enjoy the cash flow from them, but you know the primary purpose of the platform uh is to earn uh recurring management fees right so the reason that we we make these seed investments or or support uh, the, the the launch of these things is to is to return uh, earn recurring management fees so that's really what we're focused on okay yeah i was just trying to connect it back to you know the proceeds that you get from smith and williamson how much is going to be essentially excess versus what you may need to uh to further deploy behind that yeah and i course. think i think maybe the point you can take from that is that you know we can we can grow uh the we can grow across the spectrum of alternatives just by kind of uh continually redeploying stuff as it as it uh matures or or monetizes without you know significantly increasing uh the, the total amount that we've got invested in in, in seed at any given time. And I think Kevin gave some good guardrails as far as what we what we see over the coming years. Okay, uh, I think I understand that. And then there was some comment commentary around just your um, revised performance targets. Did you lower your three-year mutual fund performance target from 60% to above median to
3: 40%? No, Kevin, what happened there, Graham, is we got some feedback from everybody. Because remember, we were struggling last year and we suspended for a while to figure out a better methodology. And so yeah. think of it, it's just flipped, right? So what we're saying is we want to have, uh, have our complex to be 40% in, in the top 40% of assets. In other words, think of it as if median is the middle, 60 is the third quartile, 40 is the second quartile. We're saying that in over three years, we'd like to have the bulk of our assets in the second quartile or better. Okay, literally just a
1: flip, and that was based on some feedback we got from folks. Okay,
2: that's it for me. Thank you very much.
1: And we have uh, we have a follow up from jardin Capital from Gary Ho. Please go ahead.
4: Thanks. Just a quick quick one. Um, just a fair value adjustment and other income line that was a bit a little bit lower um, this quarter. Agent, uh, can you kind of give us some color, like looking out, should we? Re- should we revert back to kind of the normal level? And how long would that take?
2: Yeah, thanks, Gary. Um, yeah, when you look at the, the private alternatives business, the income that comes off, off of it, when you think about it from a longer period of time, it's pretty stable. Uh, the income that we earn from those LPs in the quarter was affected just by, um, by COVID-19 and some of the market disruption. But we feel pretty good about uh, the, the value on our balance sheet as it sits today especially because of the recovery of commodity prices and the um, increased economic activity. And so the thesis for alternatives is is intact, and we would expect that over the coming quarters, we would revert back to the normal uh, expected earnings. If you look at it over a longer period of time, at the AGF management level, uh, in terms of alternatives, when we seed stuff, we uh, we target 12%, and all of the investments we've made have, have met that target, so we're very pleased with that. Okay, great,
1: thanks. Yeah, we have no further questions at this time. Uh, Adrian, we'll turn it back to you for closing remarks.
2: All right, thank you very much for joining us today. Our next earnings call will take place on September the 23rd when we will review our results for Q3 2020. Details of the call will be posted on our website. Finally, an archive of the audio webcast of today's Q&A. The supporting materials will be available in the Investor Relations section of our website. Good day, everyone.
1: Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's conference. Thank you for joining. You may now disconnect.
0: Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's Investor Relations section on their website. See you next time.